what makes Iowa so unique is that we have the tendency to vote for Republican presidents and then turn around and vote for Democratic governors and vice versa. And so I wouldn't conflate what we saw in 2020 to what is possible in 2022. But what I will say is that we have to do our work. On this episode of Three Rural White Guys, gubernatorial candidate Deidre DeGere joins the podcast to discuss how she seeks to find common ground to help move our great state of Iowa forward. Just who are the three rural white guys? Well, Kellen Gracie is a nationally respected data and political scientist. He has also vowed never again to jump on Facebook after having more than two beers. Jacob Dodds is a leading expert in rural healthcare and EMS services. He's never been put in the Facebook jail, so he'll jump on Facebook whenever the heck he wants to. And I'm Mike Heaton, a nonprofit professional and a recovering lobbyist. I don't even want to be on Facebook, but you sort of have to in rural America. We are just three rural white guys sitting in a garage, drinking beer, and trying to make sense out of politics in Southeast Iowa. Welcome to the Three Rural White Guys podcast. We are excited to have Deidre DeGere with us today. She is a candidate for governor of the great state of Iowa. I am happy to say I got to hear her speak, oh, what, almost a month ago now. And yeah. She's incredible. If you have not heard her speak, if you have not been to an event with her, she makes you want to stand up and get excited about our state. Thanks for joining us, Deidre. Really, really happy to be here. Really happy to be here. I was excited uh, even about your setup uh, when I saw you in Mount Pleasant. I was a broadcast news and politics major when I was at Drake. So anytime I see AV equipment in the room, I just get excited. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so super excited to be on this podcast with you three gentlemen. It is great to have you on the show. So we don't tend to mess around with the fluffy stuff on this show. We get right into the issues whenever we can. And if our listeners really want to know Deidre's story, they want to understand how she came to the state, fell in love with Iowa while at Drake, um, became an entrepreneur, has done incredible things in Des Moines and across the state for small businesses and beyond and nonprofit work, uh, check, check it out. Check out, check out her website, DeGereForIowa.com. That's D-E-J-E-A-R. F-O-R-I-O-W-A dot com. And you can learn all about uh, this incredible candidate that's running for the governor of Iowa. But we're going to get right into the questions, right into the issues. Kellen, I think you have something lined up. I always like to ask the the uh, Iowa politics questions. So I don't know how that fits in if we want to just jump right into Let's that. Let's go for it. Let's but fly right in. I mean, I always, I, I'm always curious just because it's the most recent kind of development in, in the uh, political landscape in Iowa, how people feel about the redistricting uh, process that we just came out of. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's in our rearview mirror now. So we've we've got our districts; those are settled. Going to be implementing them in the upcoming elections. I'm just kind of curious your take, though, on the redistricting uh, process and where we fell. So I was on that track commission before I launched my campaign for governor. It was an honor. I'm a voting rights advocate, really am a fan of expanding access to the to the ballot box and also ensuring that people have a safe and secure environment when they're actually accessing their right to vote. And so when Senator Zach Walls asked me to be on the committee, I was elated. Um, and at that time, what hadn't really dug deep into the run for governor, but knew at some point um, if we did push play that I would have to step down. But it was very interesting being um, on the inside for some time. I had an opportunity to meet with the other members 
during that time and understand what their thought process was on this. At the end of the day, I mean, Iowa has a gold standard related to redistricting. You know, we hear a lot of national media talking about gerrymandering and reflecting just the challenges that people are dealing with all over the the country with more than just voter restrictions right at the ballot box, but from the inception of who votes for who, people finagling with that process. There is, you know, essentially the street description of what gerrymandering is, and we don't have to deal with that. And what I was proud to see in this vote was that our state collectively, our representatives, Republicans and Democrats, decided that they were going to uphold Iowa's gold standard in our redistricting process. Did everybody get what they wanted? Um, Probably not, right? But that's not what it's about. It's about the process being fair, being succinct, and people not trying to move the goalposts during the game or change the rules during the game. You know, gerrymandering is a political advantage type of tactic. I don't believe that there should be any political advantages in the fundamental aspects of us participating in the voter process. That's using our vote and deciding who votes and where. And I'm just proud of our state for for standing up to that. We've got some work to do, granted, as it relates to accessing the ballot box and some damage that's been done that I'm sure we'll talk about at some point in time. But that is something good that happened in this state, and it was something to be proud of. And we, we've had our, our fair share of, I guess I should say, embarrassing political leaders coming out of our state, but we certainly can't blame it on gerrymandering, right? Is mm-hmm. for that. Yep. Yeah, that's true. You know, we ended up with a, a unique situation down here in, in our district. We're in Mount Pleasant, and we sort of got carved out into a, to a district, a house district, uh, just to our west, whereas before we were about a, a 65, 35 Republican-leaning um, district, and now we're... 55-45, it's, it's actually potentially winnable with the right kind of investment and the right kind of time and the right candidate. My question for you on that front, though, is we have this group, this 10 to 20 percent of Iowans that, that voted for Obama in 2008, 2012, but then switched to Trump. And, and by a large margin, quite frankly, uh, the last two elections. And it's a little concerning for sort of us in our area here. But how do we get them back? How do we start building some of those bridges for Democrats to suddenly be attractive again to these rural moderates who have flipped their vote between Democrat and Republican over the last couple of decades? I'll say a couple of things. One, there was a study that was done that really profiled why individuals who voted for Obama twice would then go back and and vote for Trump in uh, the next following presidential cycles. And, you know, we learned a lot from that study. Two top lines that we learned was that there was this sentiment that Democrats were essentially calling Republicans out of their name, calling them uneducated, calling them ignorant, calling them deplorable, right? We remember all of that that happened. And people took that to heart. And they came to terms with this fact that, you know, how can I be a racist if I've never met a black person in my life? I mean, these were some of the feedback that we learned that that came out of that. People dug their heels in the sand. And it was, uh, and I can't say everybody did that, but that's what we learned from that study. The other thing that I'll say is that Wendy's, 45, 46% of independents showed up in, in 2018. 
And so if we're seeing that as, uh, you know, people aren't excited, they're not showing up. To me, that doesn't mean they won't. That just means they need a reason. And so one of the reasons why I popped into this campaign outside of the fact that I believe in Iowa and I believe what Iowa is capable of and I believe in its people, not only because of what it's done for me and people I know, but what it's done for this country. I also ran because there's a path. And that was incredibly necessary for me. Uh, to, to hop into this race knowing that not only could I be a good governor, but can I good, be a good candidate with a path to victory? So we have a good path to victory. And that path to victory is meeting people where they are. We know we can do better than 45% amongst independents. We know we can do better amongst 24 to 35-year-olds. We know we can do that because we've done it before. And we don't have to get to, to teachers out there, we, we don't have to get a B, B plus or A in our performance. We can get C minus and D. We want to shoot for doing as best as we can, right, at the polls. But needless to say, there's a lot of potential that we have. And I, I want people to hear that and hear that clearly because you know, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or independent listening to this podcast right now, I'm running to represent all of Iowa. You know, the proposition that I'm making is that Kim Reynolds, I'm not going to say anything negative about her as an individual, but her negligence in addressing the challenges that Iowans are facing right now is harmful to our state in present day and to the future of this state. And so it's it's incredibly important from my vantage point that people hear me on that because I am running to lead all of Iowans. And it, while in office, I am going to be doing for all of Iowans. And so I think it's incredibly important for us to hear that. But I also want people to know that Democrats can actually win this, that, that it is possible for us to win this race. We just have to dig deep. Right. And, and, and I'm hopeful that folks listening that that align with my values can join with me and believe in that principle. But this is possible because we can do better, but we only can if, if we take the next steps to actually do it. Right. So to build on that a little bit, one of the things that we talk about a lot is there almost kind of seems to be two Iowas of a sense. You have, you know, the urban metro areas, you know, the Waterloo's, the Iowa cities, the Des Moines. And if you talk to Democrats in those cities, they have a much different view of Iowa than those of us out here in the sticks. And and we've talked a lot about, about messaging within the Democratic Party, both at the state level and at the national level, and that a lot of times it seems to get lost if you talk to like a centrist Republican or what I call nowadays a reasonable Republican um, versus, uh, you know, maybe a Democrat, your average rural Democrat from, say, a decade ago, they look at the party now and say it has totally become engrossed in social justice issues and things like that. And that's not to say that those issues aren't important. But how do you reach a rural voter who has concerns in agriculture and manufacturing, um, you know, sort of that blue collar aspect of it? What's the what do you see the message of being the state Democratic view on on those types of issues that affect those kinds of people? Yeah. One of the things that I did at the onset of when we launched our exploratory was I did a conversation tour in all four districts of the state. 
And I was in rural Iowa. I was in urban Iowa. I was in suburban Iowa for all of these conversations. And even had some more, you know, targeted conversations like to union members and teachers and small businesses. And I asked folks in these groups two questions. I asked, why do you live here? Why aren't you anywhere else in the country? Why aren't you in Illinois? Why aren't you in Nebraska? And they said some of the same things that you, Kellen, and you, Mike, said, you know, about why you came back. They love the community. They love their families. They love the safety of their neighborhoods. They, they love the education system. And then I asked them where they saw need for improvement in the state. Talked about jobs. They talked about need for immigration reform. They talked about lack of access to mental health care, lack of access to uh, quality, affordable housing. They talked about need for improvement in education. And so as I'm thinking about this whole conversation tour, my purpose about it is to really hear directly from Iowans, not a poll, not a news story, but I want to go and talk to Iowans about why they take pride in their communities and where they see need for improvement. And the overwhelming synergy that I got was that there is hope that exists in our state. People believe in what their neighborhoods and their communities can be even with the thought of thinking about the challenges that, that each and every one of those folks are facing. And so you know, my message really is about the common values that we share. We have a lot of differences and we, we have a lot of things that, that separate us. Now, I'm not one of those candidates that's carrying around a party flag everywhere I go. Um, just like I was raised, I'm a Christian. I, if I wanted to bring somebody to Christ, my job was not to hit them over the head with the Bible. My job was to be who I was and meet people where they are. And so I understand that some might feel that there are certain issues that are, are taking oxygen out of the room. We see it on the other side. We see uh, a Midwest convention of divisiveness that happened a mile away from my home at the Iowa State Fairgrounds of, of people from all over the Midwest, Oklahoma, uh, that even as far as Kentucky, Missouri, right. Indiana, Illinois, to, to be a part of this divisive rhetoric that separates people, right? So it's happening all over the place. You know, segments of, of all of our parties are sending their message out. And, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. But my job right now is to make sure that I am connecting to individuals and spaces where they need me as a candidate. And that's just not my, my platform, right? And what I strongly believe in, because if I'm to lead I have to meet people where they are in my leadership style. I say all of that to say that I don't think this is uh, this election is going to be won because somebody is upset about what the Democratic Party is doing or somebody is upset about what Kim Reynolds is doing. I think this this campaign is going to be successful because we are going to bring people together and focus on our common values. And that may sound like kumbaya, but man, what other chance do we have? What other choice do we have? Because we've seen the other way and it doesn't work. Talking, bringing Trump up in every conversation doesn't move people to go participate. Right. We're at a time right now where I believe we have to interrupt that by uplifting the good and re-inspiring and reinvigorating people to get involved. Sorry, that was probably a longer answer than you wanted, Jake. <laughs> all good, all good. Kellen, do you have anything? 
the comment <laughs> the comment you just made that bringing up Trump doesn't work. This is this is kind of a recurring theme, something we've been kicking around really really trying to grapple with because on on one hand right he's a danger he's i, I don't know where i want to go with that but but <laughs> it's just he's racist he's sexist well, he's, well, he's against he, our democracy yeah, i give you all kinds he, of stuff we but, don't want to bring him up but he hasn't gone away right he, well he's fundamentally <laughs> dangerous to to our democracy and our our system and our way of life and and so on the one hand right and then on the other hand absolutely true that bringing trump up doesn't work right mhm right. So, uh, but I feel like just ignoring him completely on the other hand, like there's got to be some happy medium. You know, I, I don't, I don't think it's about ignoring folks. I, 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 so I'm a uh, former basketball coach and anytime we had a basketball game, we had uh, a game plan and that game plan was based on everything we had learned in practice that week. Um, we knew exactly who was guarding who, where everybody, I mean, every, everybody was was in cohesion um, in that process. We didn't ignore the opposite team, but we had a plan to defeat that opposing team, right? And so what I'm suggesting is that we don't have to ignore Trump, but we don't have to rely on his existence mm -hmm. in order to get us through. That's not what's going to get move people. And I think we spent too much time relying on everything negative about him, hoping mm -hmm. that would move people. That mm -hmm. is what does not work. Trump sells a, a, a lot of TV ads, right? That's why we still see him being talked about and, and, and whatnot. He, he works for something. He doesn't work for democracy. That why, that's why he wasn't, you know, a good president because that, that's not, that's not his gift. Right. And so what, what I'm suggesting right now is like, rather than focus on what the Republicans are doing and, and focusing on um, actors within the Republican party, we got to fill up space with what we can be as a state, right? Because everything else is a distraction. We have to set the message. We've been responding to a message rather than being the message that Iowans and the rest of America wants us to be as Democrats. That's what I'm trying to do here in this state by asking people what's good about their communities, celebrating that, uplifting that, right? Reinstilling faith and hope, right? And then going to that next level to say, all right, now that we know there's good that's happening, let's talk about where we can see room for improvement. Not just acknowledge that, let's let's actually like do something about it. Mm -hmm. and, and so really you're, you're saying just back to your metaphor, just not letting him be part of that game plan, right? Or, mm -hmm. or, or limiting it to an extent he doesn't define it right so i've got a question having been away from iowa for 20 years i was a little bit shocked when i moved home uh fall right now is is supposed to be my favorite time of year it's supposed to be 50 degrees 40 a slight chill in the air leaves blowing going for a hike you smell harvest yet mm -hmm. it smells like hog shit all the time mm -hmm. like all the time and that was not how it was when i grew up Right, that if we if if a hog truck went by delivering hogs to market, if you went by and drove by a a small confinement because they were small back then, you smelled it, and someone said, "Oh, that's the smell of money." You'll get over it, right? Mm -hmm. But it is every single day now. Like every time I walk out the door for the last month, that and people will say, "Well, that's the smell of harvest," and I want to say, "Bullshit! That is not the smell of harvest. That's the smell of too much hog shit." No place to put it. And so they spray it onto fields, which isn't as good as other um, 
other things you can put on your fields. Right. Right. But it's 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 corporate policy. It's state policy that forces that to happen. It's mm-hmm. it's large corporations dictating what my town of 10,000 people smells like for an entire month and a half. And to me, it's not OK. And I know I'm going to get grilled here by farmers. My brother's a farmer. Like I respect farmers. They work their butts off. But this is not agriculture. This is industrial ag that's polluting our waterways and polluting our air quality. And it's gotten far worse than it used to be um, in a long time. And on top of that, and so I'm going to relate it to jobs too real quick, the jobs suck. Ag jobs aren't paying much. Farmers can barely make a a living. Our our manufacturing jobs, which are all connected to the same ag culture that we have, this ag industry of getting hogs to market, packaging, all this kind of stuff, they don't pay worth a crap. They're 12 bucks an hour, 15 bucks an hour, which as we all know, feels like it should be a good amount of pay, but it's not. It doesn't cover the bills. And so we have a lot of poverty. We have the highest poverty rates we've had in forever that I know since it started keeping track here in, in, in Henry County. Our free and reduced lunch rates are well over 50%. They were 15% 20 years ago when I left here, 25 years ago, and now came back and now they're 50 plus percent instead of in the teens. So, and that's all part of this industrial ag piece. And by the way, a lot of that was pushed by our Democrat governor and Tom Vilsack, who's from here, and I respect a lot, mm-hmm. but there's, there's obviously a stranglehold on ag, and it is causing damage to our small rural communities. And I, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. How can we work with them or work it collectively to make it better, to make our, our environment better, to make our jobs better paying, whatever it may be, because there's a lot of money in the industry. We're just not seeing it in rural America, yeah. your average person. There, that's a so, controversial one. So good luck. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and I'll push back uh, just at the top of it and say that I don't believe that corporate ag is the crux of all of these challenges that you just shared that Iowans are facing. The challenges that you did share are real. Um, but I wouldn't put the blame on on corporate ag there. Is there room for improvement? Heck yeah. Um, and but I think the the biggest part of the equation from my vantage point is what has been missing in in us crafting solutions around not only environmental justice but advocating for our small farmers in the state. And that's what's been missing is the small farmers, just the regular everyday folks that are just trying to make do with what they have, whether it's eighty acres or eight thousand acres, right? I think it's incredibly important. Um, that we include them in our policies, that we ensure that, you know, when we're when we're trying to resolve the challenges with climate, we don't just have educators and activists um, and leadership in the room, that we we have a viable representation of the wonderful dynamics that exist in rural Iowa. That means our small business owners in, in rural Iowa, and that also means our farmers as well. I believe that the resolutions that have come to the forefront around environmental justice, clean water, good soil over the last several years have not been ones that have been derived in collective efforts. And that's not how we move forward. That's not how we have sustainable change. And so I feel very strongly uh, about ensuring that we have good, clean drinking water. And I, I know that the vast majority of our state wants that, whether you're a farmer or you're living in urban Iowa, and we've got to come to terms with that reality. I'm going to be that governor that pulls people together and does the hard work. It won't be easy. 
people will get mad, but we will focus on a common goal so that we can accomplish it together. Otherwise, we will all be held accountable because the future of our state won't be a state worth living in because of the, the damage that we've caused. The other part of that is how we do better for our farmers. I mean, our, our farmers, our small farmers are the most resilient people in America. I go to Oklahoma and people are like gawking all over the world that, that I know Iowa farmers, right? Because of things that happen in the state and, and the value that they add, they're resilient and they've done a lot under just challenging circumstances. But the fact of the matter is they're not getting what they're worth. And we have to do better as a state there and balance this economy in such a way that they can do better. You can't make the same amount of money that you used to make, you know, 20, 30 years ago to take care of a family of four as a farmer. Uh, you, you need many more acres to be able to do that. And, and I know we can do better than that. That's why the state is in dire need of a comprehensive economic development plan that allows us to see where this state can be 5, 10, 15 years down the road. It includes corporate ag. It includes our farmers. It includes small business owners. It includes manufacturing. It also includes education. You all talk about leaving. Well, our kids are leaving and they're saying they ain't ever coming back. We can't wait 20 years, more years for them to boomerang back. We have to give them reason to stay now. And that means our education system must work compatibly with um, our workforce uh, so that we can make sure that there is minimal skills gaps and we're sending kids to either college or a job after they graduate from high school. And so I don't believe that there is a one-size-fits-all approach to the two issues that you all just shared. It's a comprehensive approach, and I believe that it's going to take great vision and, and great minds that do exist throughout the state to resolve those challenges. But we have to dig deep and do the hard work. We have to put people first in every single one of those meetings, every single one of those decisions. Right now, we have a governor that is putting the interest in politics First, that is no good for us. I mean, just the other day, we hear her talking about a law uh, regarding um, Mississippi abortion rights, right? And and here we are in communities in the state. You know, if, if we re truly care about reproductive health care, we got communities in the state that don't have OBGYNs, that don't have hospitals where they can deliver their babies. That is paramount to our future. Women need spaces to have their children, right? And if we can't focus on those things, but we wanna throw a political football, a moral issue that, that really gets to the heart of some people, if, if we wanna use that, that's an indicator to me that you have no interest in truly resolving the challenges of this day. Mississippi has the worst mortality rate amongst mothers and, and, and children in this entire country, and we're taking cues from them. She could stay right here and resolve these challenges. Rather than going to the border to resolve a national immigration issue, she could have stayed here in Iowa and gone to some of these meatpacking plants, visited some of our ag facilities throughout this entire state, and, and helped to resolve the immigration challenges that we're dealing with here, the worker shortage that we're dealing with here. And so, folks, you know, what, what I am suggesting in all of this is that Anything that you all have talked about today, it's a reasonable thing. And unfortunately, our, our, our governor right now isn't focusing on these things in such a way that's, that's really producing resolutions for the state as a whole now and in the future. And I just think it's time that we believe in what we can be 
and we stop making do just because we, we feel like we have to. And, and we join ranks and, and get this thing done so that we don't have to rob Peter to pay Paul. We can just make sure Peter is good and Paul is good. Nice. Yeah, we're, we're out of time, unfortunately. Otherwise, I could go forever here. This is awesome. Um, okay, let's let come back. Oh, for sure. For sure. I love it. Okay, let's let's jump into the you got this. Who wants to go first? I can. Go I'll go first this time. I always go last. So I'm going to go first this time. My you got this this week is goes out to truck drivers, uh, especially during this holiday season. We have a Walmart distribution center here in Mount Pleasant, and I know a lot of uh, truck drivers and the people that work on the trucks, I might add, because we have a pretty big facility for fixing up those trucks. But they're driving by the highway, exiting into Mount Pleasant, pretty much every every 10 seconds you see a new truck coming in. It's, it's a little crazy how many truck drivers are coming through Mount Pleasant all the time. And then you add the fact that it's the holidays. It's it's busy. They're on deadlines, crazy deadlines because the holidays. And you add the the stressfulness that comes from our whole supply chain blockage that we've had the last couple of, of months. And I just want to say thank you to those truck drivers. Um, I want to say stay safe and know that you're appreciated. You are our, our metaphorical reindeer. You're pulling a trailer <laughs> filled with toys and gifts like Santa's sleigh and I just want to say thank you for literally bringing so much joy to everyone this season. Um, it may be a stressful time of year, but know that you're appreciated. You got this. That's a good one. Thank you. I have a brother-in-law who's a truck driver. I'll have to send this to him. Nice, nice. I love it. Who wants to go next? All right, Jacob. I'll I'll go. Um so my, my uh, you got this goes out to those working in the service industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I think we've all experienced working in the service industry at some point, even if it was just a part-time job in high school. And even before all of this insanity, it wasn't exactly probably the most fun world to work in. Probably why most of us went off into do other things that are less stressful. Um, and now we live in a world where, you know, it's almost a daily thing. We're reading about a flight attendant being attacked on an airplane. Um, but, but it really, um, it kind of came to, to, to focus for me this weekend. I ventured out and did some Christmas shopping and met my parents for dinner in Iowa city. And uh, we had to wait a while to get seated at a table. And you, you looked around and you noticed that half of the tables in the restaurant were empty and you were kind of sitting there wondering, gee, why is it I'm sitting here? Well, of course they're short staffed. And it's not it's not uncommon to, to walk into even fast food places, those those places that we rely on when it's ten o'clock at night and we haven't eaten yet. You know, they're closing their dining rooms at six, seven o'clock at night sometimes because of the, the staffing shortage. So for the, the service workers out there that are still showing up to work, know that there are some of us that uh, understand what you're going through. I encourage those people who uh, you know, get frustrated with the fact that they've got to wait a little extra longer for different things um be patient and to those of you on the other side of it you got this that's awesome do you want to bookend this Deidre so we'll have Kellen go and then you can be our final you got this is that okay sure I'll do that okay mine uh, a similar theme um this time of year I, I I always like to think about our child care providers um we, we have a National Day of Appreciation for Child Care Providers. It's the Friday before Mother's Day every year. But I always like to, to make sure to tell, tell folks to, to keep them in mind on their, 
holiday gift list this time of year when they're when they're thinking about people to provide a little cheer for uh, in the holiday season. Child care providers this time of year are going through a lot, and it's that time of year too where disease is rampant. Not just the the pandemic going on, but all the other illness and disease that that little little kids like to spread around at at uh, child care places and schools. So, uh, my you got this uh, this week goes out to child care providers. It's it's a, a rough. A rough time of year, but but you got this. A little a little hint for everyone too. When you go and think about what you want to give to your childcare provider as a gift this year, um, you know, just as a as a thank you, do a gift card. Actual something good that they can use and take home with them. Uh, cookies are nice, and there's other things that you can do for them. But I always I always go gift card cash. I mean. <laughs> I like to think that they need to drink copious amounts of alcohol to put up, <laughs> put up with my children. So put up with your children. Yeah. <laughs> and if you don't, and they're in home, we did this one year. Hire somebody to come in and deep clean their house. Oh, that's a good oh idea. my gosh. That's like, we really paid to have the carpet in home stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's a whole other topic we didn't get to about <laughs> in home childcare, which is we have a lot of that in rural communities because we can't afford we to keep a big one. About that. Oh yeah, I'm sure. You wanna do you wanna wrap us up, Deidre? With Man, yours? y'all had such good ones, and and I was thinking, um, what's mine gonna be just in this process? But I think just after hearing you all and the questions that you asked today, and hearing your backgrounds, I feel like I just wanna do a you got this to parents um, because parents have been going through a lot. And I know when you all signed up for this, that you did not envision that a pandemic was going to turn your world upside down. And I know lots of joys came out of this process, but I know lots of tears came out of it as well. I'm not a parent myself, but I talked to my parent, my, my friends who are parents and got lots of godchildren talking to their parents. And I, I am just, I admire your dedication. Um, and everything that you all put into your families. And you can drum up the energy to go to work and, and do that too, and deal with whatever you're doing there, right? And so I just want you to know during this holiday season, I know some people you know, might not be able to do everything that they wanna do for their kids, but man, you are a parent, you are rocking it. You ain't perfect, but you still got this. And I just appreciate you. That is awesome. That's perfect. Deidre Dejir, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I was just in awe the whole time. Uh, just hearing you speak, hearing you talk about all the things you're passionate about, your vision for this state. We're honored to have you on the show. We hope to have you on again sometime in the future as this whole campaign moves on into next year, into 2022. Uh, just so thank you for joining us. Any, any final closing words you'd like to share? You know, it was a pleasure to be here with you three white guys. I'm so <laughs> glad you're doing this. I now follow you. And so I'm super excited to see what other episodes come out. Right. Keep doing this. Keep doing it. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this episode of Three Real White Guys. Thank you, Deidre Dejir. Thank you, Kellen. Thank you, Jacob. I'm Mike Heaton. Thanks for listening.